Now, last week in chapter 30, we got into some incredible material <clears throat> that deals with the, uh, you know, the greatest generation that, um, that we uh, know of in our time, and that is the generation of, of 1948, uh, which is talked about in Matthew chapter 24, which really begins the beginning of the end for uh, life on earth as we know it as God moves toward bringing back the nation of Israel, uh, regathering them, restoring them, and uh, ultimately leaving to the second coming of Christ when uh, the Lord comes back and establishes them. And, you know, we've some, seen some extraordinary things out of chapter 30. Uh, it really opens up some things. And then we kind of slid right into it again on Thursday night when somebody asked about the Antichrist, and we got into a great uh, study on that. And really going uh, way beyond where most people, uh, you know, really uh, are at when it comes with the Bible. And then, of course, yesterday in Bible Institute, uh, we got into uh, the Millennial Reign of Christ, and there again, a very deep um, uh, understanding of, of what really goes on. And, and all of it really, you know, I know that when I came through it years and years and years ago, how it broadened my understanding of uh, of really the greatest time period in the Bible, as far as I am concerned, and that is the, um, you know, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's God's day in the Bible, called the Lord's Day, the Day of the Lord, that day. And, you know, chapter 30 has been a, a gold mine of truth in, in so many ways. You know, I think the, the best way that it has, uh, maybe not the best way, but, but certainly one of the simplest uh, ways that it has is to show you how that all you need is your Bible. The Bible is its own dictionary. The Bible is its own commentary. The Bible, you don't need to go someplace else to find, uh, you know, somebody defining for you what the Word of God says. Now, I get it. When you first get saved, you go through discipleship, people help you, <clears throat> but that trails off after a while, or it should. You should come to the place in your life in time where all you need is the Holy Spirit of God to teach you the Bible. That doesn't mean you don't keep coming to church. That's God's structure. <clears throat> you keep learning. That's God's format. But it's for your own personal study. It's you and God and the book. And uh, getting to that place in your life is, is my goal to try to help you to do that. Uh, I look at it that the longer you can, don't take this in a wrong way, but the, the, the closer you get to God, the more uh, you get into the Word of God, the less you need me. It's a thing where in the less you need me means simply means that the more you can help others. And that's exactly what Christianity should be. And all this is dealing, as I said, with that great generation uh, when God begins to establish uh, the nation of Israel. And, and, and you know, in our, in our lifetime, uh, the restoration of the nation of Israel was paramount. For almost 2,000 years or 2,400 years, they, they had been without a nation cast adrift, so to speak, in, in the world with no homeland, no country to call their own. And God did an amazing thing by bringing those Jews back in 1948. And we showed you how that process prophetically uh, worked all the way down through the line. And if you've been around here any length of time, uh, you should also know that the Bible itself is built around and addresses three people groups. And, and this will help you, you know, understanding this. And first of all, we know that the Bible is written to the nation of Israel. But then there's sections of the Bible that are written to specifically to Gentiles. 
And then there are certain parts of the Bible that are just written to New Testament Christians. Now, I say this all the time, that all the Bible is written to you, but not all the Bible is written, or, uh, excuse me, is written for you, but not all the Bible is written directly to you. And, you know, the way guys get messed up in the Bible and heresy, you know, gets into play and bad teaching is the fact that uh, uh, the first question you ought to ask yourself, but any time you open up your Bible and start to read it, you set the context, you simply say, now who is this speaking to? Who's he talking to here? If you're in the Old Testament, you most likely assured he's talking to the Jews. If you're uh, in some of the prophets, you, there's a chance he's talking to the Gentiles, which he does in Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. Uh, if you're in the New Testament, chances are if you're in the Pauline epistles, he's talking to you, the church. And that's how you establish a context by asking yourself, who is he speaking to? Because three people groups are addressed in the Bible, and the Bible is written to them. And all three of these will fit into God's plan uh, that he's going to fulfill. And we've talked about that, you know, many times. Right now in 2020, um, we are seeing the last minute details of what God is doing for his plan to unfold uh, in, in the future of what he's going to do. And along with God's three people groups and God's master plan, you know, he has uh, three places that will be uh, their place uh, in his plan when he begins to unfold it. And you never want to forget that God's overall plan, and, and if you lose sight of this or you never see this, you know, then you, this is where you get messed up. We have over here on a side wall, we use it for Bible study and Bible Institute, our chart that represents from Genesis 1 all the way up into Revelation 22 and beyond. And, uh, you know, it's probably the best detailed chart that's easy to understand that I've ever seen. Uh, originally, it was in a little book, and then it made a little folder uh, of it. When I had this done, I took it to a place in Raytown, uh, and they actually <clears throat> printed it off, you know, in, in large scale and did a marvelous job on it and created that. There's no way you could just go buy one that big. But down in the front, right underneath uh, the beginning there of the Old Testament, there's a little paragraph, and it talks about God's original plan. And I want to read it to you, and then uh, you probably can't follow me along, but that's okay. I'll be back there in a second. And here's what it says. God's original purpose was to populate an infinite universe with a people made in His image, subject to Him as Almighty Sovereign. The first trial ends in Genesis 1-2 with a rebellion of these spiritual beings and a recreation and recommission for man made lower than the angels to begin the work anew. This trial ends in Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 13. The subsequent revelation of God is devoted to an accurate record of God himself becoming a man to redeem a fallen creation and to absolutely ensure that God will finish to perfection his original plan. And his original plan is for a universe, a universe populated with sin sinless beings that would love him and fellowship with him through all of eternity. I certainly hope you don't think, and maybe this is the shallowness of your understanding of God. And, you know, that doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means that you've never really got into it. But I hope 
you would begin to understand that God has to have a bigger plan than what's going on around us. And I'm going to illustrate that a little bit later on with some, I think, good illustrations that actually helped me <clears throat> years ago that I saw uh, in the life of Sodom when I studied it. I told the people in Bible Institute yesterday, <clears throat> you know, take your finger and draw a line about 12, 14 inches like that. And then at this end, <clears throat> you want to put a parenthesis. At this end, you want to put another parenthesis. And then at each one of those parentheses, you want to draw that line out for a mill, maybe another 36 inches on each side. <clears throat> and then you want, to, you want to write in there, on this one here, you want to, on this side of the parentheses, you want to write eternity past. On the other side of the parentheses, you want to write eternity future. And in the middle of that little 12 or 14 inches, you want to write time on planet Earth. Because what God has done according to that chart, according to the Word of God, in God's infinite plan that spans eternity, <clears throat> He's put a little parenthesis called time, which runs about 7,000 years. And in that time frame, He has given everything that He has created. Every spiritual being that He has created, man in particular, He has given them the choice to uh, either accept or reject and be with him in eternity or not. And this is laid out so clearly in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, where it says, Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, to order it and to establish it henceforth even forever. They're talking about the throne of David. Now, not only do you have three people groups, but you have three places found in the Bible that will match up to those three people groups. When God begins his eternal plan out there, past the parentheses, based on where we're at <coughs> with this generation, you're going to find in Revelation chapter 20, 21, and 22, and again in Isaiah, Isaiah 66 and 65, you're going to find where he talks about a new heavens, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. Now, we don't have time to get into all of this this morning. We're certainly going to get into it in the next couple of weeks uh, in Bible Institute as we move into the end of everything. But uh, suffice it to say, the new heavens <coughs> are going to be to one of the people groups. The new Jerusalem is going to be to another one of the people groups. And a new earth is going to be to yet one of the other three people groups. And as God moved down through history to bring man uh, into his plan, and as I said, that's the whole scope of the Bible. The Bible covers many things. The Bible is a very accurate history book. The Bible is a very accurate scientific book. The Bible is a very active book on outer space and all the things that it does, inner earth and all of those things. But I think most importantly, for at least for me, the Bible is a book that shows me that down through history from the beginning of time in that parentheses till it ends, in that short 7,000-year period, God through free will through man's free will, has said to man, no matter how, uh, no matter where at in the Bible, look, I got a plan, and it's going to go for eternity. And there's a big bus over here that's going to be God's bus that's going to go into eternity, and you have a choice to get on that bus that's going to heaven or this bus that's going south. And you can figure out where south is. And everybody gets the choice. It's a free will choice. 
We have people out there today that, uh, you know, that uh, teach what we call Calvinism or predestination. And that is simply a heresy and a teaching uh, that teaches that, uh, you know, that God shows who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. And if you're going to heaven, then you're chosen and you have no say in it. And if you go to going to hell and you're not chosen, you don't have any choice in that. And of course, that is so, you know, in the Old Testament, 18 times at least you find the word free will. Everything about God and man is based on man's free will. And the heresy of Calvinism or predestination is simply that. A very uh, satanic teaching that people get into that if you ever talk to one of these people, they know nothing about the Bible. They only know what somebody has told them or what they have been taught. And you're going to find that God has used down through history, and this is where I'm going with this, you're going to find out that down through history, God has used two of those three people groups to do that and lay out His plan. In the Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, we know that it is the church, the body of Christ. And of course, they represented by, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is represented by the kingdom of heaven. And the New Testament, the church is represented by the kingdom of God. Most people think they're the same. They're not the same. And, uh, you know, and it's a thing where in the Old Testament, you were born into a, a literal nation, the nation of Israel, and a kingdom that was a literal kingdom. In the New Testament, we're born again into a spiritual one. And that's the main difference. And both of these, both in the Old Testament and today to us in the New Testament, are called to reach the third people group, the Gentiles. And that's what the nation of Israel did. If you in the Old Testament wanted to be, get God's favor or God's salvation or God's uh, uh, you know, relationship with God, and you were an Amalekite or you were a Hittite or you were a Moabite or whatever you were, you couldn't do it that way. You had to come and be part of the nation of Israel. You had to become what we call a proselyte. You had to be a Gentile who gave up your Gentile practices and ways and embraced Judaism. And of course, you see this example uh, in the book of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. She wasn't a Jew. She met uh, a, a guy who was a Jew and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Boaz, and, and, and he takes her in. And she says, she says, your God is going to be my God. Your people are going to be my people. She became, for all practical purpose, even though she was a Gentile, she became a Jew and by being proselyte, uh, being a proselyte Jew. In the New Testament, the same thing. The Gentile world <clears throat> needs God's salvation. But the only way they're going to get it is through the church of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ and becoming part of a spiritual body. So we preach the Bible. <clears throat> we <clears throat> witness out on the streets at work. We tell people everything this church does is to get the word out that there is, a, there is a spiritual kingdom that you can have a new birth that is going to make you a Christian. And just as a Gentile in the Old Testament, for all practical purposes, ceased to be a Gentile, even though by birth they still were, and became a Jew in the New Testament, you cease to be a Gentile, even though you still are, but now through a spiritual relationship, you become a Christian. 
And that's why the Bible says the old things are passed away, all things become new. That's why the Bible says now we're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's why the Bible says now set your affections on things above. That's what changes about us the day we got saved. Now today, we're going to look at a study of the nation of Israel found in Proverbs chapter 30. And we're going to look at our next set of four things. And we'll see now four different aspects of God's people, the nation of Israel, in the tribulation. And I had to give you what I just gave you so you'll better understand once we get into this. And to better understand this, I want you to see how God looks at the nation of Israel and really what part the nation of Israel worked. Now, we talked about how God used her as the identity in the Old Testament to reach the Gentiles. I'm going to show you how that works here in just a moment. You need to see that before we get into what we're going to look at. Now, there's many ways to study the nation of Israel in the Bible. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, you can study her as the fig tree, which we know about from Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> you can study her as the vine tree, as clusters of grapes. You can study her as the barren woman. I showed you how a couple of weeks ago that there's seven barren women in the Bible who represent the nation of Israel. There's a lot of ways that you could do it. In Exodus chapter 4, the nation of Israel is called God's son as a nation. Now, you and I are called God's son as individuals, but that's the difference between God dealing with Israel under a literal kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and God dealing with you and me uh, in the church, which we'll talk about in just a few moments, in the kingdom of God. So in Exodus chapter 4, the nation is called God's son. You know, I was teaching my Bible study up in Lincoln. Uh, we're going through the book of uh, <clears throat> Galatians right now, and we were in Galatians chapter 4. And I show them in the beginning of Galatians chapter 4 where it's t Paul's talking about the nation of Israel and it, he goes back under the law for a moment and he says that in the Old Testament they didn't recognize a man being a man until he was 30 years old. That up to that point he was still considered a child or a young man but he couldn't really do anything. God could not do anything with him until he was 30 years old. And I looked down there in my Bible and I had put a note, Lord, I don't even remember where I put it. It had to be 30-some years ago, maybe longer than that, that I remembered then at that point that that's exactly how God looked at the nation of Israel. We studied in the last three or four weeks how that the Zionist movement and how in 1918 the Balfour Declaration was the beginning of the Jews going back. And in 1948, God established the nation of Israel as his people. And in God's mind in 1948, Israel now became a man. And from that point on, God has begun to reconstructure and orchestrate the whole world. And you know what? God first touched her in 1918 and she became a man in 1948. In the time frame between 1918 and 1948, yes, it's 30 years. And now in 48, that great generation, she became a man. Now, also, along with all of that, and I think probably first and foremost, but I wanted to give you those other things, in the Bible, Israel will be likened and called God's wife. And in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1, it says, Sing, O barren, that thou dost not bear, talking about Israel, break forth into singing, cry aloud, thou that dost not travail with child for more uh, are the children of the desolate than the children of the 
married wife, saith the Lord. And of course, his reference there is to the nation of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 62, verses 1 through, uh, verses 4 and 5, it says, Thou shalt no more be uh, termed forsaken, talking about Israel. Neither shall thy land any more be desolate, but thou shalt be called uh, Hezbollah, and thy land Beulah. For the Lord delighteth in thee, and the land shall be married. Now, we talk about Beulah land, and there's a song out there, you know, Squire Parsons sang it beautifully, you know, Beulah land. Beulah means married. And you're going to find that here, Israel and the land, as you're going to see through the Bible, are inseparable because that's what God gave them with Abraham. So now we see again that she is married. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as a bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. Israel is likened in the Old Testament to God's wife. Now, in this relationship with God as her husband, they would bear fruit. And the fruit would be through the structure of the nation of Israel and her relationship with God under the law. She would reach out to the Gentile nations. And remember now, when God called Abraham out of the Ur of Chaldees, way back in Genesis, he said that that nation that he was going to bring forth out of his loins, Israel, would be the salvation of every nation and every family on earth. And God's plan was through an intimate, intricate relationship with the nation of Israel as his wife, they would bear fruit and, you know, and uh, would uh, uh, reach the world. And the salvation would go to the Gentiles. And of course, the apex of this in history would be David and Solomon. And then after that, we know that things fall apart. And that's the next thing I want to say. We know what happened. Israel left God. And in the Bible, it's pictured as a woman stepping out on her husband and leaving him for another man. In this case, Baal worship, because we know that God is a jealous God. In the Ten Commandments, the first two was that thou shalt have no other God before me and make no graven image. And that's exactly what she did. And in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it's a picture of a woman, Israel, leaving her husband, God, for another man, Baal worship. And you see this so clearly in places like, well, I'll read for you, Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 26 through 32. Here's where he says, Thou hast also committed fornication with the Egyptians, thy neighbors, great of flesh, and have increased thy whoredoms to provoke me to anger. Uh, Behold, therefore, I have stretched out my hand over thee and have diminished thine ordinary food and delivered thee under the will of them that hate thee, the daughters of the Philistines, which are ashamed of thy lewd way. Thou hast played the whore also with the Assyrians because thou wast unsatiable. Yea, thou hast played the harlot with them and could not be satisfied. Uh, Thou hast Moreover, multiply thy fornication in the land of Canaan under the Chaldea, and yet thou wast not satisfied herewith. How weak is thine heart, saith the Lord God, seeing thou dost all these things, the work of an imperious, whorish woman, in that thou buildest thine eminent place in the head of every way, and makest thine high place in every street, and hast not as a harlot and thou scornest higher. 
Verse 32, but as a wife that committeth adultery, which taketh strangers instead of her husband. That's God's viewpoint of the nation of Israel. Once she got into Baal worship and left God, the true God, for all the fake and false gods. The book of Hosea, one of the minor prophets. Hosea, and, and most of the prophets in the Old Testament, when you begin to study their books, and I lay it out on our website, they are great object lessons. God, Because during this time, Israel is way off the scale. So God does some radical things to, to illustrate to them how far they are away from God. And uh, he does it with almost every prophet. With Hosea, he tells Hosea to take a wife of whoredoms. And he says in uh, Hosea chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, The word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Belial, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. This was some bad times in Israel under these kings. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea, uh, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take thee a wife of whoredoms, and the children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredoms, departing from the Lord. And the idea was that Hosea would take a wife of whoredoms, and everybody around would know that what she was, and they would say something to him, you're not supposed to do that, why would you do that? And at that junction in that conversation, he has a great opening and an opportunity to say, why did I do that? Because God told me to do that, because that's exactly what you're doing with him. And you're going to find in Hosea chapter 2 verse 16 and again in chapter 2 verse 20 that even though God um, looks at her this way, there you begin to see in those two verses that God says, I'm going to bring her back someday. Now I want you to see this. From 606 B.C. when God turns his back on the nation of Israel and the kingdom of heaven is gone now and the times of the Gentiles come in. Just as God is likened Israel to his wife. Now listen to me very carefully. Just as he likened her as his wife, when she steps out with all these other nations and all these other gods, at this point, very clearly, God, listen to me, God divorces himself from the nation of Israel. And yes, as we stand here today, I want to say it again, just so you didn't think I said something or you heard me wrong. As we stand here today in 2020, from 606 B.C. to now, all the way up to the tribulation period to the second coming, God is divorced. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, talking to Israel, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I, God, have put away, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities ye have sold yourselves, and for your transgression is your mother put away. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6, 7, and 8. The Lord saith unto me, In the days of Josiah the king, hast thou seen that backsliding Israel hath done? She has gone up upon every high mountain under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, turn now unto me, but she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah, remember they're split now, north and south, saw it. 
And I saw when for all the curses whereby backsliding Israel, uh, causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away, here it comes, and given her a bill of divorcement, yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. And from 606 B.C. up and now, and including this time, God is divorced. Now, I, I, I grew up in a, in, a, in a Baptist mindset of the 60s and the 70s uh, that, uh, you know, divorce had back then was the unpardonable sin. And, uh, you know, if you were divorced, it didn't matter in most churches if it was before you were saved, if after you were saved. You know, if you ever got remarried again, uh, you could never... Uh, you know, you can never serve and do anything for God. You'd be living in continual adultery. There was guys that were preaching that all over the country. And it was absolutely ludicrous. And they were all basing it based on the Old Testament principles that were given to Israel. And for anybody around here who understands the Bible, we know that the uh, Old Testament guidelines for marriage, divorce, and remarriage are not given to the church. Here again, who the Bible is right, written to. If you want to know God's standpoint in the New Testament for the New Testament church on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, not the Old Testament. But, you know, we're so far from that today that it's unbelievable. And yet, he says, God, that he will take her back and will restore her as his wife. And he says there in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 14, turn O backsliding children, uh, saith the Lord, for I married unto you, and I will take you of a city and to a family, and I will bring you to Zion, married to the land. He says in Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 20 to 23, Surely as a wife treacherously departeth from her husband, so have ye dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. A voice was heard upon the high places, weeping and supplication of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way and have forgotten the Lord their God. Return ye, backsliding sliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Behold, we come unto thee, for thou art the Lord our God. Truly is vain uh, is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of the mountain. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Now this sets up one of the greatest principles for the New Testament church. And, uh, you know, and is the fact that even though that uh, understanding that God looks at Israel as his wife and she stepped out on him and now he gave her a bill of divorcement under the Old Testament law, now he's going to bring her back. And it sets up one of the greatest New Testament principles in a spiritual aspect for the church. And that is the goal and the key of the New Testament church, first and foremost, is one word, restitution. Making things that are broken right fixing things, the restitution of your soul to God through salvation, the restitution of you uh, who are out of fellowship. Notice he uses the word backslider here. We hear that a lot talking about God's people. Well, they're backslidden or I'm backslidden or, you know, backslidden is not a New Testament term. You never find it in the New Testament. But appropriately, it's an Old Testament term dealing with a nation of Israel who has backslidden against God. So it fits. And the church restores that, restitution. It'll restore your marriage. It'll restore your family. It'll restore you with other Christians. The bottom line is, is the church first and foremost, based on that great principle in the Old Testament, is one of restitution. Making things that are wrong right. And what we are looking at 
you know, in our lifetime right now is based on what you now understand is God getting ready to restore Israel through the worst time that she's ever going to go into, which is the tribulation period. That's why it's so important in understanding this generation. Now, we have taken, you know, well, we've just taken it in individual sections through Proverbs 30, but you can see the dynamics of it all. You can see how that in every place it just (laughs) bubbles over with things that bring us back to God dealing with the nation of Israel. So I wanted to give you that. I wanted you to see how that that is how God views her and why this generation is so important because God now is moving to restore his wife unto him. Now, very quickly, God has his wife, the nation of Israel. And in the church age, we, the church, are likened to the bride of Christ, his bride. God has his wife. Christ has his bride. God's wife is Israel. Christ's bride is the church. New Testament, Old Testament. Where the Old Testament Jews was the Gentiles' way of salvation uh, through the structure of the nation of Israel, the New Testament salvation for the Gentiles will be uh, God's church, the body of Christ, the New Testament structure. One's likened to God's wife. One's likened to Christ's church. And uh, you'll notice that the church is called a virgin. You see that over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We looked at it the other night. And uh, it's, a, it's a chaste virgin presented to Christ. And that's why you have those two concepts. And this is laid out in many places in the Bible. You know, God's wife and Christ's bride. You have to have that fundamental understanding to understand where this thing is going. It'll always be. You know, in the stories, in the fairy tales that people would tell, it always ends the same way. All fairy tales are, they're based on the Bible concept. They may not all have Bible principles in them, but they follow, everything follows the Bible. You're going to have a situation in fairy tales where it tells a story, but then it all ends right. It may not look good for a while, but the end is, and they live happily ever after. And right now through life for the nation of Israel, doesn't look too good. For us in the church, doesn't look really good. But when Christ gets it all going and that plan is enacted and we move into that, past that parenthesis into eternity future, Revelation 20, 21 and 22, and we finally understand and realize and God impacts his plan that for 7,000 years he has been asking people, do you want to go? Or do you not want to go? And in the Old Testament, he did it through Israel. In the New Testament, he does it through us. We will live happily ever after. And it'll be a great time. You know, every movie plot, every movie plot you see, and there's only, there's only 33 original plots that Hollywood can come up with. And they all are based on the Bible in one format or the other. All Westerns, all movies basically have three components. You have a good guy, you have a bad guy, and you have a woman. The bad guy will be dressed in black or associated with black. The white, the good guy will be dressed in white, and the woman will be uh, a woman. She'll be either a picture of the nation of Israel or the body of Christ. You know how it works. The bad guy's the villain. He comes in and wants the land or the farm or whatever, and uh, she won't sell it. So he takes her, ties her up on the railroad tracks. You know, the train's going to run over. You know, this is the basic format. And just as the train's coming down the track, here comes the good guy. He kills the villain, 
gets her off the railroad tracks and they live happily ever after. That's exactly what life is all about. You have a bad guy, the devil. You have a good guy, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have the church, the woman. And right now he's got, he wants to tie you to the railroad tracks and a train to run over you. But you know what's going to happen? Someday your prince will come. There's another one. Snow White. Snow White ate a forbidden fruit. And she died just like Eve. She was Snow White just like Eve was. And you want to find the seven dwarfs, the seven spirits of God over there in Isaiah chapter 11. And it all fits together. And she laid there dead by a forbidden fruit, just like you and I, dead in trespasses of sin. And then one day what happened? One day her prince came. Not the ones from Photomat, but the, her prince. And what did he do? He kissed her. And when he kissed her, she woke up and came back alive. You know, you were dead in trespasses of sin, and so was I, because of the forbidden fruit that Eve ate back there in the garden. And one day your prince showed up, and he kissed your soul with the word of God, and he made you alive. See how it works? It all works that way. I mean, you have the westerns with the wagon trains. You know, and the wagon trains are going through there, then you got all the Indians. And all the Indians want to kill everybody on the wagon train, and so they attack them. What does the wagon train do? They circle the wagons, and they're all shooting now, you know, and the Indians are running around in a circle, you know, and killing everybody. And it looks like they're all going to be wiped out. It looks like they're all going to be killed. And just about the time it looks like the Indians are going to overwhelm them, you know what happens, off in the distance. Here comes the cavalry. Saves the wagon train. That Jew's going to be in Valley of Armageddon, going to be surrounded just like the wagon train. And the Antichrist, the Indians, are going to ready him down. And the Bible says, lift up your head. Here comes the Calvary. Revelation chapter 19. Always fits that way. You know, <clears throat> we don't see it much anymore. You know, I, I would suggest that sometime maybe on, uh, you know, on television when they're on, you got to watch them. But the old cowboy guys back in the 50s and the 60s, they, they, they really had some great moral value for our kids. I remember one time watching a, a Hopalong Cassidy thing done back in the 50s. It was on late one night, and I was watching it because I used to watch Hoppy when I was a kid. And I've forgotten all this, but at the end, you know what he did? He come out with a Bible, and he told the kids and admonished the kids to obey the Bible and obey mom and dad because that's what Hoppy would do. Incredible. Try to find that today. <clears throat> My favorite <clears throat> was the Lone Ranger. Now, the Lone Ranger is the perfect picture <clears throat> of uh, what I'm talking about. <clears throat> he rode a white horse. He was a mystery man. And he always showed up at the nick of time when nobody else does. He saved whatever. And then he was off and gone and everybody said, who was that masked man? I know who he was. And I know who he is. You know, back then, nobody, there was no immorality. I mean, the, the, uh, the cowboy guys didn't fall in love with some saloon gal. And, you know, the only thing he ever kissed was his horse. And you know, nobody ever got killed. A guy would rob a bank, he'd run off down there, down the road. A good guy would come out, take a gun, fire up there off of, in the sky. He'd come down, hit the guy in the arm and, you know, knock him off his horse and he'd arrest him. It was different back then. Ah, you had the Lone Ranger, had a white horse always showing up at the right time. But, you know, there was a counterpart to it. And where the Lone Ranger rode a white horse, the counterpart had a black horse. And he's Roman Catholic. And he's got a black outfit on, and he's also got a mask. And this guy goes around whoosh, 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 putting markings on things. 
It all comes back to the Bible, Zorro. He goes around putting marks on things, just like the Antichrist. And you know, when you, when you see all this, and you understand everything that's unfolding around you, you begin to see how Proverbs chapter 30 really opens a lot of things up. And so far, you know, the first week we got into the generation, verses 11 and 14. Then the three things that satisfy not the next week, 15, 16, and 17. Then three things that are too wonderful, 18 to 20. And then last week, three things that uh, disquiet the earth, 21 through 23. And we, we, we really laid these things out uh, in an incredible way. And yet, with each one of those, there was a fourth one that even opened it up even more. The first one was a fire that says it is not enough. We talked about that. The second one was uh, something that you, don't, you know not. We laid that out. And then last week, it was something the earth cannot bear. And we talked about that. And all of that was just from our Bible. We didn't go to any Hebrew. We didn't go to any Greek. We didn't go to any anything. We just let the Bible interpret itself. Okay, look at Proverbs chapter 30 today. And boy, here's four more things. And again, this will, this will look at four things that represent in one way or the other the nation of Israel. And I want you to see this. There be four things that are little upon the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their meat <coughs> in the summer. The conies are, built, <coughs> are but a feeble folk, <coughs> yet they make their homes in the rocks. The locusts have no king, yet they go forth, all of them, by bands. The spider taketh hold with her hands and is in the king's palace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now and praise you for the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> pray, Lord, that you'll give us wisdom and insight into everything that we need to see and understand here. We love you. We pray now, Father, that you'll take this time, uh, broaden our understanding, take what we've already learned, take what we've talked about in a historical thing to help us even put the nation of Israel in a little better perspective. And now help us put all these things together, and we'll thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, and the sake we ask it, uh, amen. Now, <clears throat> I want to look at four things here. And the Bible says that they're little upon the earth. <clears throat> but yet it also says they are exceedingly wise. Now, these four little things will show us four different aspects of the Jew in the tribulation period. That's our context of chapter 30. <clears throat> Uh, now, I want you to notice that this one is different from the other one because the other one gave us three and then a fourth one that accented the other three. This one, you don't have that. We just have four things, and we want to look at it. Now, we're going to learn some things today. Not only is my goal <clears throat> to uh, give you what these are so you can get them into your Bible, but my goal is also to show you how you do this without any help from anybody anywhere just using the Bible that God gave you. Now, if I was reading this and trying to figure this out, and <clears throat> we're like most of you. Uh, none of you here are, are <clears throat> probably, most of you are not young, Christ or young Christians in the sense that you, you're all new to the Bible. You've been around for a while. So you, you, I would be talking to you if I was like you reading the Bible. <clears throat> here's what, here's what, Here's the key word that I would look for, or key phrase. And that would be exceedingly wise. Given the context of chapter 30 being found in the book of Proverbs, <clears throat> we know that the theme of Proverbs is a wise man and a foolish man. 
And we know the wise man and the foolish man have been defined as a nation of Israel, ten virgins, Matthew 25, five are wise and five are foolish. The five that are wise get the Proverbs. You find that all the way through uh, Proverbs. And he follows God. <coughs> the foolish rejects God's truth, follows the Antichrist. And you're going to find in, in Matthew 25, as I said, you have ten virgins, five wise, five foolish. In, in, the, in the epistle of Third John, you have the same thing. <coughs> you have a wise man and a foolish man. And uh, it's all laid out for you just as you come through the Bible. Now let's look at the first one. <clears throat> the ants are a people, <clears throat> not strong, yet they prepare their meat in summer. Now, now that I have my first key, would be exceedingly wise, and I know the context now is going to be something in the tribulation. Now I'm looking at an ant, and the next key word would be ants are not people. So he says the ants are a people. So that tells me that the ants are going to represent people. Now that I know it's going to be exceedingly wise people and the context is going to be the tribulation period, now I know that uh, the ants are going to represent something about the nation of Israel in the tribulation. So what you have here is simply this. And uh, God used this ant to illustrate and to show us the Jews' greatest aspect in the tribulation once the second half of the tribulation starts because ants are incredible workers. And in the tribulation period, the last three and a half years, the nation of Israel has a tremendous work to do. And you're going to find that ants are incredible. I mean, I'm going to talk to you a little bit here how incredible they are, but uh, I mean, uh, they, uh, they, 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 they have armies, they fight wars, they have a queen, somebody over them. My first ant movie that was uh, uh, back in 1955 or 56, my mom took me and my sister, we used to go to the movies on Saturday, and that was, uh, it was quite different than what you do today, because you can't go today, but you know what I'm saying. And the, the movie in 1955, and maybe some of you have seen this, it's a classic. It's the movie Them. How many's ever seen the movie Them? Okay, we'll move right along. Nobody's ever seen that movie. Okay, but it's a, it was, you know, right after the first atomic bomb and right after Roswell, you had two movies that were very popular. One was obviously the UFO. The other one was great mutations of bugs, spiders, ants, people because of the atomic radiation that was put out there in the desert. So here it was, them in 1955-56. You had to get it. You had to watch it. Was, it was, was these giant ants that had come through the desert. Oh, it's an incredible deal. There's another one that's later that I think is more realistic. Not that them wasn't, but it's the movie with Charlton Heston called The Naked Jungle. Anybody ever see that one? Okay, <coughs> well, <coughs> moving right along again. <coughs> if you please saw it on uh, YouTube, text me so Woody can give me a thumbs up that somebody's seen these two. Anyway, this is, he's a plantation owner in Africa. South America, in the jungle. And every 100 years, all the ants migrate billions, trillions, trillions of ants 
go on a rampage and they kill and destroy every animal, every man, every vegetation. There's no reason why they start. They just go, and he has to fight them all off. Quite incredible. But ants are workers. They really are. You know, Proverbs chapter 6, uh, verses 6 through 8, Solomon studied ants. Now, Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. So if he's studying ants, there's a reason to study it. And he says, go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, uh, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. Now, in our tribulation context, the work that the Jews, likened by ants, has to do is found in Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 14 and Matthew chapter 22. The evangelistic work of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists to reach the Gentiles in the last part of the tribulation period. That's their work. And the Bible's talking about how that they're prepared for that work. And they do that work. And they're like ants that just spread out and go over, uh, you know, and evangelize all the Gentiles that they can during that time period. Now, <clears throat> inspirationally, I too studied ants. I'm the kind of guy when I find something in the Bible and it says that somebody did it who was smarter than me, there had to be value in it. So years ago when I read, you know, I read uh, Sodom and studied ants, I, I thought to myself, uh, it was a nice sunny afternoon in July or June, I can't remember when, but I thought, well, if there's value in that, then I'm going to do that. And of course, uh, uh, I, I, learned some, I, I learned some great things. And all you only have to do is go to your backyard or your front yard. In my backyard, and maybe it isn't true if you have people who come in and fertilize or squirt and kill all the things, but in my yard, I got 100 anthills, and they're quite incredible. And, you know, you take them for granted. You don't even look. But when you sit down and just look at them and study them, it's unbelievable. The intricate structure of how they work. And Solomon said, the wisest man, he said, study the ant. And I did. And, you know, I came to some great conclusions about God and even myself. And I'll tell you what, you can, it's easy to lose your perspective of things uh, and day after day on the anthill, life and planet Earth. I mean, they work, we work. They go to work, we go to work. They go back to the little things, we go back to our little things. They have little baby ants down there to we have baby ants, you know, kids and all that thing. It's a, it's a thing where it, the lives are so similar. And I, I, would, I experimented because I knew they were workers from our text today. So I'd go out there and I'd find an anthill that was just, you, you ought to see them over in Africa. In Africa, they're 20, 30 feet high. You've got to have a bulldozer to knock them down. But in my backyard, well, they were pretty, I mean, John Knox Village never looked so good to an ant. I mean, it was, there was a structure there. And you know what I'd do? I'd just trash it out. I'd kick it over, block all the holes. I mean, those little ants were running everywhere. And uh, it was a thing where <coughs> I thought, yeah, I'll show them. Because they think, they think that this yard is theirs. They haven't paid the mortgage on this property. They don't bring in any money every month. But they're down there in their little holes and their little little communities and their little ant hills, thinking that that's all theirs. And so I would go over and I'd destroy it. You know what? Next morning, 
be built back. All the holes cleared out, be built back better than it was before. Now, I studied the ants, and I got really enthused in it. And so back when I was a kid, you could buy ant farms. Jana and Chris Fender got this for me. Uh, she's an antique dealer, and she heard me preach this sermon years ago, and she found it. But let me read it. This is an ant farm. And inside here is a little plastic thing that you put. It's got its own dirt comes in it. it you, you can, you sit, I'll tell you right here. It says, includes ant farm, ant habitat with four connecting ant ports, clean tunneling sand, clear, flexible ant way connecting tube, illustrated ant watcher's manual, stock certificate to order ants. You can order ants. When I bought this, it came in the mail, and then you could order ants, and they came in the mail, and it says right here, Ants set only within continental limits of USA and Canada. Postage and handling uh, free required. Delivery of ants may take three to six weeks. What, are they walking? I mean, uh, you know, weather permitting. I guess they are walking. Uh, and, and it's the thing where it is 19, July 4th, 1956. This is, this is Uncle Milton Levine. He invented the ant deal. While at a family picnic, I couldn't help but notice a colony of ants marching and foraging. This gave me the idea for an ant habitat that would allow children, that was me, to watch these industrious little creatures up close. <clears throat> Thinking back on how fascinated I was as a boy <clears throat> watching ants on my uncle's farm in Pennsylvania, I added a miniature farm scene, which it does, and the famous <clears throat> trademark ant farm was created. With over 20 million sold, I've been very fortunate that the Ant Farm brand is now considered an American classic, and my original idea is just as popular uh, 50 years later. And so in here is a little glass thing about this size, and it's about that thick. It's got little runways in it, and you put the sand in it, and you put the ants in it, and then it's got a clear side. You can watch them do all their work. You'll watch them build the queen's chamber and lay their eggs. You'll watch them work back and forth, obviously. You can condominium in it and put a little tattoos there from one place to the other uh, and it's, a, it's an incredible thing. I had one of these when I was a kid and I got it probably when I was 9 or 10 <clears throat> and I put the ants in it <clears throat> and uh, I, it was fascinating. It was fascinating. Those ants <clears throat> never understood that they were in my house. At least I don't think they did. They never understood and looked at, I never saw one looking back at me saying who is that big guy out there? They just did their business. And in their little world, this was all their world. And they lived this life like this was the only world that they knew. And you know what? One day when I got about 16 or 17, I tired of ants. I discovered girls. And the ants meant nothing to me anymore. You know what I did one day? I went in and took my ant farm with all the ants in it threw it in the trash. The ants had nothing to say about it because they didn't buy the ant farm. I did. 
You know, sometimes in life, and this is what I learned, we live our lives like the ants, that we think this earth down here is ours, and it's really all ours, and we run it, and it's all our stuff. Let me tell you something. There's coming a day when the God who created this big ant farm is going to come down and kick it and throw it in the trash. And you and I ain't going to have a word to say about it. And just like the ants, they thought that was theirs and they owned it, but they didn't. Somebody else paid the price for it, me. And on this world, somebody else paid the price for it, and it's not your ant farm. Study the ants. You learn a lot from them. It's just that simple. Now, the second thing, verse 26, the conies, the conies, however you pronounce it, are but a feeble folk. Here again, it's a folk, people yet make their houses in the rocks. Now, this is studying the Bible by words of association. Now, this one will be easy because our key word here, uh, we'll put the context for it, will be rocks. Over the last couple of weeks, like in verse 19, we saw this like the serpent in the way of a rock. We saw it the rock city, Petra, where the Jews run to it in the tribulation period. And this will be the same thing here. I showed you Isaiah 2.19 and Psalms 104.18 and Jeremiah 48.28. The conies here is a a rabbit or a hare, as it's sometimes called in the Bible, like in Leviticus chapter 11.5. And rabbits are very fast. They're almost impossible to catch. And these particular rabbits live in the rocks. So they're, hey, I remember my dad and I were hunting as a kid in Ohio. And uh, when I first moved to Kansas City back in 75, you didn't have any groundhogs out here. They were very rare. And then gradually the groundhogs moved in and now they're everywhere. I'll tell you what, when I first moved here, you didn't have any armadillos either. They're all down in Texas and Oklahoma. Now they're up here in Missouri. But back in Ohio, groundhogs were everywhere. And when you would hunt rabbits in a cornfield or any field, it would be chucked full of, 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 of groundhog holes. And if you kicked a rabbit out of, the, out of the cornfield or whatever, you had about 10 seconds to get a shot off before he scooted down a groundhog hole. And these rabbits live in rocks. So you just get a quick glimpse of them and bang, they're in the holes of the rock. Picture of the Jews hiding in the tribulation period. And uh, that's why it's impossible to catch them unless you have a trap, snare, or a net. So, having said that, sometime on a rainy afternoon when you've got nothing to do, get your concordance out, go through the Old Testament and look at the word snare, net, in the Old Testament passage, and you'll see that that's exactly what the Antichrist does to catch the Jews. He sets snares and nets for them, just like if somebody was trying to catch a rabbit. It's just that simple. Psalms 104, verse 18 says, tribulation context, the high hills are a refuge for the uh, wild goats and the rocks for the conies. And they hide in the rocks, rock city. So that's dealing with the Jews and the tribulation and Salem Petra. Now the third one. Verse 27, the locust, that's a bug. The locusts have no king, yet they go forth, all of them by bands. Now, in the tribulation, the Jew will have uh, no king, nobody to rule over them other than the Antichrist who's trying to rule over them. Because, and the reason for that is, as you'll remember at the crucifixion, uh, when Pilate in John chapter 19, verse 15 he says, shall I crucify your king? And in John chapter 19, verse 15, they answer back, we have no king but Caesar. You know, the two greatest, and boy, you need to be careful with this, the two greatest 
utterances that the nation of Israel, or two worst utterances that they ever uttered out of their mouth, was two things. And God took them account and held them accountable to it. The first one was in John chapter 19, verse 15, when God's watching the events of his son down there and the Jews say, we have no king but Caesar. And God looked over to his recorder and said, write that down. The second thing is found in Matthew chapter 27, verse 25, when again at the crucifixion they uttered the words, his blood be upon us and our people. And the great God of the nation of Israel looked over to the recorder and said, write that down. And for the next 2,000 years, God held them accountable to those two things. You better be careful what you utter out of your mouth against God in the Bible because God may say, write it down and then hold you accountable with it. And for the last 2,000 years, His blood has been upon them and their people. And for the last 2,000 years, they've had no king but Caesar. Incredible. Now, the Jews going forth in the tribulation are attacked by bands of locusts. We know that, uh, and the word locust here would be your key words. In the educated world, it's called a uh, canatopopede. That's a Latin word for, for locust, canatopopede. And if I was somebody that was lecturing in a Bible college, and I'd have to use the word canatopopede. And, uh, but since I'm not, it's a locust. And uh, it, they, in Revelation 9, verses 1 through 11, it talks about these demonic issue, things that come out of the bottomless pit, and the Bible says they're shaped like locusts. And they torment men five months. You'll find in Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 23, that a plague of locusts there is like a swarm that will contain millions and millions, and they'll destroy everything, and that's what they're going to do in the tribulation. Exodus chapter 10, verse 4. Exodus chapter 10, verse 12. Moses brings the, brings the locusts as plagues against Pharaoh, and all that is a picture of the tribulation period, Pharaoh being a type of the Antichrist, Moses being one of the two witnesses that show up in Revelation chapter 11 with 144,000 and does the exact same thing, and he brings the locusts in. So this represents the terrible plagues that Israel has to experience and go through as they're trying to escape men being tacked not only by the demonic locusts out of the bottomless pit, but the swarms of locusts that they're talking about here that, uh, you know, that envelop the earth and destroy everything. Then the fourth thing, just systematically as you go through the Bible, fourth thing, verse 28, the spider taketh hold with her hands and is in the king's palace. Now we're going to talk lastly about the spider. Now let me just say here, I hate spiders. Some people are scared of snakes. I don't mind snakes. If you look at my one Jeep, I got a snake catcher up on top of it up there. It's about that long. If I'm going along the road and I see a copperhead or a rattlesnake, I'll snap out and catch it. Uh, I keep it there handy all the time. I don't worry about snakes, but I don't like spiders. Uh, I remember a movie. Maybe you don't remember this one. Maybe you do. Remember the movie Arachophobia that came out about spiders? That's the scariest movie I ever saw in my life. I, I saw it one time. I never watched it again. It's the scariest movie on the planet. I hate spiders. And, uh, you, know, uh, I, uh, you know, you see those. What's really scary, spiders are the scariest thing on the planet. You have what they call wolf spiders. You know what a wolf spider is? He lives out in your backyard. And in the springtime, when they start coming out, he looks huge. And when you step on him, 
a million little spiders run off of him. He's had a million little baby spiders and they're attaching themselves and making him look ten t- her ten times bigger than she is. Oh, it's terrible. Now, I'll tell you something else. If you don't believe me on this, you come over to my house in the spring sometime and I'll scare the fire out of you. Now, my, the average yard has about 10,000 spiders in it, in case you don't know that. And I can prove that to you. Now, I didn't plan this. I don't know how to explain this. I have several headlights. You know, you put on your head and when I take the dogs out so I can have both hands free. And I didn't. I, just, I don't even remember where I got them. I've got several, but only one pair does this. And I don't know if it's the lens. I don't know if it's the bulb. I don't know what it is. But I will take it out in the backyard and put that on a wide beam, and I will sweat it around the yard, and it picks up spider eyes. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I, it's the freakiest thing you ever saw. You pan that yard, there are 10,000 spiders looking at you. And you know what they're thinking. Bright ones. And I took the ones that are, some are just little spots, but they're everywhere. Some of them are really bright. And I've walked over to the really bright ones, and those are the really big spiders. <laughs> the scariest thing you ever saw in your life. You think I'm kidding you, you come over, call me, we'll put it on. I got, I, I, I'll put it on you, and you'll walk around there, and uh, it's the scariest thing you ever saw in your life. I mean, spiders are scary. And, you know, you're going to find that in stunning uh, each one of these, you'll find each creature here is small, but it's exceedingly wise. And what we have been seeing here is that he illustrates something about the Jews by something these little creatures do. And we've seen it so far. And, you know, every one of them will be a different aspect of Israel uh, struggling through the tribulation. And each one of them will deal with a different aspect of it. Now, here your key word will be, if you're reading this, and you're, you'd have to maybe be a little more into the Bible to get this one, but your key word would be take it hold. You don't want to focus on the spider and the bug and try to figure that out. You want to find out what each one of these is doing, that he's saying that they're doing, and then how they illustrate, because a spider will take hold of things. You know, you go out there in, the, in your backyard or in the woods in the summertime, and you got those spiders that, that put their webs across the paths and are right in the middle, and they're big, ugly things. You can try to knock them down with a stick. You can do it. They hold on forever. You put them on the end of your stick. You can't shake them off your stick. You knock the webs down. They'll hang on to the web, and they're going up a, a, a single. You can't even see it, a single strand of web. They're going up there. They hang on forever. And, uh, you know, a Jew in the tribulation period, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 20, verse 13, that he has to endure unto the end to be saved. In other words, he has to hang on through the end of the tribulation period. Now, here's your key verse, Isaiah 56, 6. What's he hanging on to? What's he taking hold of in the tribulation period? And this is why the spider is used to illustrate this because a spider will hang on and hold on forever and the Jew is going to have to do that and take hold of something just like the spider. Let's read it. Isaiah 56, 6. Pick it up in verse 5. Even unto them will I give in mine house within my walls a place and a name better than the sons and the daughters, and I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now notice what he says here. In mine house within my walls. That's the king's palace. Okay? This is God talking about a millennial passage that, that 
the Jews are going to be in his house, in his walls, and our spider here is someone who's hanging on in the king's palace. You see that? Now watch. And I will give you an everlasting name, and it shall not be cut off. Also the sons of a stranger that join themselves to the Lord, there's your Gentiles, proselytes like we've talked about, to serve him and to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone, here it comes, here it comes, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant. That's what the Jew has to get a hold of in the tribulation period. The fact that he's going to get a new covenant and it winds up taking him all the way through the tribulation period. Now, the king's palace, let's look at that. Psalms 45. Oh yeah, we just walked through the Bible with it. Psalms 45, pick it up in verse 11. So shall the king greatly desire to see thy beauty, for is the Lord uh, and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is wrought of gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companion, will follow her and be brought under her. Um, with gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children upon whom mayest make princes in the earth and I will make my name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. Now the context here of Psalm 45 is the marriage of the Lamb. Revelation 19 through 7 through 9. The church to Christ. And these are all the attendants that make up from the Old Testament and the Jews in the tribulation. And notice they all wind up in the king's palace. Why? Because in the tribulation they hung on, they endured until the end, and they held fast the covenant that God wanted to give them. Now after the tribulation in the millennium, we have here a wedding of the king. And you'll see this in Matthew chapter 22, where the 144,000 that we looked at as the, uh, our first one here, uh, going out and going out to, uh, to reach the people like the ants doing the work, and it tells you in Matthew chapter 22 that they're going to the highways and the byways. They're going out to the Gentiles in the tribulation, 144,000, the worker ants, and they're filling the wedding with guests, Gentiles. And this here in Psalms 45 takes place after the tribulation period. The wedding is taking place here, and this is where he says that he's going to, if they hold the covenant, they're going to get brought into the walls in his house. That's the temple. And uh, the Jew now who endured unto the end, he, like the ant, this is the first way we looked at him, he worked through the night and he evangelized the Gentiles. Like the conies, when the Antichrist chased him, some of them hid in the rock city, Sela Petra. Like the locust, the swarms of the literal locust, they got through the plagues without a king. And now like the spider, they have held on, endured until the end, and got the new covenant that's talked about in Hebrews chapter 8 and 9 and Isaiah chapter 56 verse 6. And now because of those things that they did, each one likened to a tiny thing, a creature, an insect, 
but that is exceedingly wise. In the millennium, they now wind up in the king's palace, Psalms 45. And all of that, just more pieces to that puzzle of putting Proverbs chapter 30 together. All that from just a King James 6, 10, 11 authorized version and just letting the Bible tell you, looking at key words, not having to to find something any other way but how the Bible lays it out. In Proverbs chapter 30, you ought to see by now. We're not done yet. We've got a long way to go with it. Proverbs chapter 30 is an incredible chapter on unlocking the keys to the tribulation of people that are going through it unlike any other chapter. You get the tribulation in a lot of different places, but in places like Proverbs chapter 30, it goes down to the intimate detail and puts the detail into it. And next week, we'll look at yet uh, another set of verses that will add to what we already have learned. And when we're done here out of Proverbs chapter 30, you'll have a complete picture of everything because it's forcing us to go back, if you notice, putting all the other material together, showing you God's overall plan and then how today the nation of Israel is like a God's wife, the church to Christ's bride, and how the two components work in the Old Testament and work in the New Testament and in eternity, how they will work together. And uh, we'll add some more to it next week. So let's close out in prayer today. Thank you for tuning in today. Don't forget the wedding in just one half an hour from now. If Sean doesn't bolt and run out the door, we're going to lock the door so we can't get out. And uh, let's have a word of prayer. Wish these two kids the best in the world. They're great kids, and we love them very much, and they're part of our work here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you for all you do for us. Thank you for today. Thank you for the depth of your word that just keeps unfolding itself in everything that we look at. That, Lord, we don't go anywhere else to look for any other way to put it together. That it just opens up itself when you just believe it, you love it, and you follow it. And truly, Lord, the key to learning the Word of God is not studying it. The key to learning the Word of God is not even reading it. Though those two are vitally important. But the key to learning the Word of God is simply loving it. Loving it more than anything else on this planet. Recognizing it for what it is. The absolute, perfect, complete, inerrant, inspired Word of God. Given to man and then following it like we believe it. Letting it tell us instead of us trying to tell it. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. All right.